so we had a crazy week, Jimmy, a, like wild week, like unprecedented amounts of buzz around what you and I have been doing. We had somebody write a blog post about one of our podcast episodes, and that made it to the front page of HN. Yeah, I was so sad I didn't catch it when it happened. Wait, no, really? Re- yeah, really. What? Yeah, our, like we we went giga viral this week. It's it's incredible. No, 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 no. no. Hang on a second. Hang <laughs> on. A second. No, I'm, I'm actually deadly serious. And we got we got 400 downloads from it. 400 downloads from front paging HN. What? I didn't even see this. Yeah, no, it's uh, it was because it was a blog post titled "I Had an Epiphany," which is not something I'm ever going to click on. Yeah, just to be honest. Yeah, right. I yeah. mean, I don't browse that file website, but. <laughs> It has a great search function. <laughs> yeah, a great search function. Yeah, if you search the word epiphany. It was yesterday, this blog post. Um, <laughs> do you want to do a dramatic reading of it, Lou? <laughs> <laughs> a software epiphany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Wiles. Oh, my God. Episode 61, the programming is theory builder. Okay. Which is exciting for me. I just want to put that out there. Suddenly, I understand software. Even though I don't respect podcasts. As an information delivery system. Guys, you've just been called a delivery (laughs) system. I recently listened to a podcast that felt like having an epiphany. The podcast in question was episode 61 of Future of Coding. So I guess they're saying that that specific episode of a podcast was a podcast. Yeah, fair enough. It is is essentially a read-through slash review of two papers with which I was unfamiliar, but which I believe are actually quite famous and influential. That feels like a roast of these. All right. Why did listening Yeah, you've to- made it past the funny part. The funny part is the whole like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't respect podcasts, but I listened to this podcast and it was good, actually. <laughs> which is, I, I think that's great. <laughs> to be fair, I, I think that is the correct opinion. I agree. That is my basic view of podcasts, including this one. Well, there's a reason you're on this one and not on, uh-huh. you know, Lex Fredman's podcast or, or what have you, right? <laughs> yeah, though I did so, just unblock yeah. him today on Twitter. Really? Yeah, I wow. unblocked him. Why? I realized that, so me and Steve, my boss, we sort of 50-50 run the Teal Draw Twitter account, mm-hmm. right? And I'm realizing that a lot of the notifications that come into it are from people that I've blocked on my my main account, my own personal account. Uh, and it just made me feel a bit awkward. So I've just gone and unblocked everyone. So if, if I've blocked you in the past, this is your second chance. You have one <laughs> chance. I just mute people. I don't I don't block them. Like it's fine if they go look at my stuff. It's just like I don't really care about that meme account, right? Like that's not what I'm on here for. Mm-hmm. So like I'm just gonna mute it so that they stop getting or like to this week it's like you know oh spacex did something now all of twitter is just spacex definitely just spacex there was nothing else that happened on twitter this week yeah no (laughs) that my like for you just like it was like oh yeah programming doesn't exist anymore yeah there's only spacex but yes, yeah. Twitter is a vile website and nobody should use it. Yeah. The, the rest of this, I just want to put it, the rest of this blog post is really, really nice. Uh, it's, you know, a person going and listening to our episode on programming as theory building. And I also threw in Gilbert Ryle uh, as like background reading for that. And they realized like, oh, yeah, now we're had it right about programming as theory building. 
And it explains so much of what this person sees in real life software. And I totally agree. It's uh, it was it was it was nice. I I this is my favorite paper. I think that more people should have this epiphany, and it's it's so typical hacker news style where like most of the comments are like this isn't anything. There's not really a big epiphany here. I don't know how you don't realize these things, and then they don't state the things that the paper actually states. It's great. It's like a plus. Title is a bit overblown for the actual epiphany. <laughs> this is manifestly not the case. <laughs> I don't see anything particularly unique to software in this thesis. <laughs> Epilepsy warning. <laughs> I also think this is way off base. <laughs> Made me seasick. <laughs> you might understand software, but you clearly don't understand web design. <laughs> The value of computers is that you can write code once, and the computer can execute it repeatedly ad infinitum. As a programmer, your middle theory of the code base has value to its owners, but it's not the product. The code base is not the product. The product is whatever the output is created and consumed by the relevant stakeholders. Oh, bud. Not only is this like quintessentially hacker news, this is actually almost identical to Donald Knuth's reply to Nauer, which is just hilarious. Like this is, it's just the way that everyone reads it. They say, first, I agree, and yet I don't agree with the conclusion, which doesn't, you, that's not how, that's not how logic works. Like, it, the, if Nauer is making his argument the way he thinks he's making it, this is a logical conclusion that you should follow. And I just, it's just my favorite. I love that, like, so many people, yeah, so here I have Donald Knuth saying, My experience agrees well with Peter Nauer's hypothesis that programming is theory building, and they strongly support his conclusion that programmers should be accorded high professional status. But I do not share Nauer's unproved assertion that reestablishing the theory of a program merely from its documentation is strictly impossible. On the contrary, I believe that improved methods of documentation are able to communicate everything necessary for the maintenance and modification of programs. So a slightly different focus here, but amounts to the same thing, that like the theory is not the main part that the software itself and the documentation are all we need. Uh, and it's just, I don't know. It, I, I wish now I wrote that paper a little bit more clear, but I'm happy that, uh, that we could do the service of, of talking about it too. And other people could grab on to the concept. You know, it sounds trite when you just say the conclusions without actually diving into all the details. So I'm not surprised that Hacker News took away that it's just a trite conclusion. My favorite is one person who said, Made with Party Kit if anybody wants to make their own. Party Kit? Yeah, Party Kit. Nice. Share an office with those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> this is my favorite Hacker News comment. This is a top-level comment. There's this seminal paper by Peter Nauer called Programming is Theory Building that arrived at the exact same conclusion when it comes to programming. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So that's, good. Uh, that's how he knows he summarized it well, though, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 It's just, it was just so good. It's like Chinese whispers, but there were no mistakes. Uh -huh. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I liked that one, which is like, it, it is true. 
Yeah. Uh, programming is theory building. I mean, if to to that person's, you know, not credit, but credit, like he doesn't link to the paper directly. Oh, but mm-hmm. still, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was honestly, this is for me at least, this was super satisfying to see. Like I'm, I'm excited that people are listening and enjoying the things that we're talking about. And especially for this paper, this was one of those papers that I worried we wouldn't do justice to. And it's been a well-received episode. So I'm very excited. And that, that comment gets an upvote for me. That's the, <laughs> that's the stuff I come to Hacker News for. Nice. Uh, Lou, how was your week? I'm not even joking. Hey, I want to know. What's it yeah, been like? Uh, it's been crazy. I was also on Hacker News. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> the title was equally unhelpful. The title was, I think I need to go lie down. <laughs> yeah. So on Monday, uh, my boss, well, you know, at Teodraw, we've just finished like working on some kind of I would say kind of boring stuff. Like we're, we're just getting the library ready, changing a few APIs. It's it's not necessarily visually flashy. So you know, we thought we'd earned a bit of fun. So my for everyone, everyone got some. You know, pick pick something fun to do. My fun task was Steve said to me, "Hey Luke, can you?" That's my my, my impression of Steve. He said, <laughs> "Hey Luke, hey Luke, can you get like two hundred likes on Twitter?" <laughs> Like, and that was literally my to-do list for the week. I think I posted it up on Mastodon. Yeah. You know, part one, step one, write a to-do list. Step two, um, get 200 likes on Twitter. Step three, speak to Gitbook. Lovely guys. Um, and, and yeah, I got 200 likes. And then we got about, I don't know, 10,000. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's been a fun week. <laughs> So for for anybody who doesn't know, because this podcast is probably coming out like maybe two to 18 months after these events, do you want to tell them what this is about? Yeah. So like um, the GPT vision API came out. So what you can do is just chuck the AI a a picture of, of a little user interface of a little website, and it can turn that into a website. But the um, the fun thing that we've been doing is then it places that website back on the canvas, which you can then, can then annotate again, like draw some new things on, and then give that back. And you get in this cycle where you're like having this back and forth visual conversation by drawing stuff. So like turning a picture into a, a, you know, a website, that's not new. But the new thing is ha- being able to then draw on whatever they give back to you. Which feels really weird. Feels really weird. And everyone's freaking out. Why does it feel weird? Like, I, I tried to use it, and for whatever reason, my API key was just rejected repeatedly, probably because of, you know, servers falling over. <clears throat> Who knows what? Let me in! <laughs> bang, bang, bang. I think you need to you need to put $5 on your account. Oh, I put, I put, I put not $500, but more than $5 on my account. Oh, well, there you go. Maybe, yeah, maybe they just shut it down. I think it's because they invented AGI who fired Sam, and so, you know, they know that <laughs> yeah. you might take down the system, so they're rejecting you. you. Your comments against AI have, you know, made you get banned, so. That's the... Th- the like the domino stuff that happened is like, hey Lou, can you get two hundred likes? That's like Monday or whatever, right? Yeah. Wednesday, it's like, oh my god, we're on the front page of every internet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, people are using this to like make games, and everybody's 
having this this giant fit and it's it's incredible and terrifying and this whole cluster of emotions all at once. Friday, OpenAI implodes. And I see these as like there's like a linear, yeah. you know, straight line path from uh-huh. Steve saying, hey, Lou, can you get 200 likes? Two, uh, you know, Monday, it's going to be like, uh, I don't know, Sam Altman is dead or something like that, right? Like, this is going to be... Yeah, this, this is like, who knows? By the time this episode goes out, will we even have jobs? I don't know. It'll be like the Dyson sphere has happened or something like that. And we're all living as like an energy cluster orbiting somewhere in a spheroid around the sun. Yeah. That's the that's the accelerationist view that these, you know, Silicon Valley hacker news types <laughs> want us to E slash act. Trying to reshape society into Yeah. It, yeah. Which is why it was on the front page of Hacker News. Um but hey, do you know what should have been on the front page of Hacker News? But wasn't? Lou, it's your first segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> it should have been Beyond Efficiency by David H. Ackley. Dave, that should have been on the front page of Hacker News. With any luck, somebody will find this episode a year after it comes out and write a blog post <laughs> titled, I had an epiphany. Yeah. A hardware epiphany, maybe this time. Maybe. And then people will finally discover this, this very short, highly readable, super approachable, I don't know it, what to call it, because it's not a traditional sort of essay like you'd get in a journal, even though it, it was um, uh, submitted for, we're reading a preprint, but it was uh, accepted to uh, communications of the ACM. So it's in the, it's in the ACM, but it's, it's this like three column, like three page, and then some references. The references were actually interesting. Basically like a, not, not, I don't, I'm trying to avoid saying a screed because <laughs> it's not that angry, but it has that like flavor of like, like a, like demagoguery. Like it's like trying to whip up people's enthusiasm and energy and like get them to, you know, change how they approach their work in a way that I find very appealing. So yeah, I don't know what to call this, but it's, uh, it's short and sweet. I believe, uh, it's called a viewpoint essay. Okay. Which is like, I guess that's like an opinion piece. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. A letter to the editor. Yeah, yeah. A letter to the to editor. To the editor, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think of all of the papers we've read, this one I can definitively say, like, did not need an editor, right? Like, this did not need mm -hmm. anyone to shorten it. There were no bits that needed to be cut out. Everything in here is essential to the argument being made. If anything, personally, I, I would have liked a little bit more. I did go and watch a bunch of, or listen to a bunch of David Atley, um, uh YouTube videos in the robust first playlist. So that helped me kind of get this mindset. I will say that uh, I'm, I, I'm not, I haven't absorbed it enough. Feel like I'm a little like I hope this conversation will help me kind of get more where this is, uh, because it's a it's a big shift from where we are, and I feel like I don't quite understand all that entails. And speaking of chain reactions from a bit earlier, I would say that this paper, or like this series of papers that Dave actually made um, a while back is actually what has made me sit here today. Like, 
I got into coding again. Like I, I learned it when I was younger and then I picked it up again when I was learning about all this robust first, this simulation style of computing. And that's what got me back into coding. And that's why I'm here. And that's uh, why Sam Altman got fired, right? (laughs) (laughs) And it's, you know, all that GPT-4 needed was TLDraw to become sentient. And that's why we're going to, you know, the heat death of the universe is upon us. All Uh all because we Uh went beyond efficiency. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's all connected. Yeah. (laughs) Which almost sounds like, beyond efficiency almost sounds like we're getting even more efficient than efficiency. Mm. Uh, That's like what my first thought when I saw beyond efficiency was, but it's actually kind of the opposite. Mm. This is a paper kind of arguing that we should throw out efficiency. That efficiency is not always good. Mm-hmm. And that efficiency comes with some real trade-offs around what he calls robustness. And I think on the face of it, that is going to sound very unpalatable to a lot of the people in our general community. I, I think of, you know, I don't know. That, of course, the person that comes to mind is somebody who gets named too much on this podcast, which is Jonathan Blow. Ah. Uh, <laughs> 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 I mean, you you say that like we shouldn't care about it. We should care about efficiency even less than we do right now to a lot of people, and they're gonna feel like you're really out of touch with how little we care about efficiency. But this is, I guess, like way beyond that kind of take to like we should get rid of CPUs and RAM. Yeah, yeah. Like this is a. It, it starts from a. a a very simple place of robustness, which is broadly defined as like resilience to error, whether that error comes about as the result of, you know, a cosmic ray hitting your CPU or because there's a malicious hacker who broke in and sprinkled malware through your system, or there's a coding error or any of the other reasons, you know, bad data or something like that. Any of the reasons that a computer program might fail to perform its intended purpose, those, those failures, um, are, you know, the, the robustness is, is our bulwark against that insanity, against those failures. And that in the drive to make uh, computers more efficient, and specifically to make the execution of software more efficient, we have had to give up robustness. And we had more robustness in the past. And there's some things, you know, in the analog computer era, say, um, computers were more robust because they had to be you know, analog and, and and very much more physical in nature. But as we switch to digital computers and you could be more certain that uh, that there was like perfect fidelity of data transmission and that sort of thing, we have gradually bled the robustness out of our systems in the name of efficiency. And so this is, you know, that's the, the small seed of the idea is like recognize that ro- robustness and efficiency have this relationship where you can trade one off to gain the other. And now that you recognize that relationship, let's look at some of what we've lost and let's consider how we might recover it. I think that's a, that's a, a really provocative position to start from. Yeah, and I think um, that's what got me really interested in this idea in the first place. You know, I think there might be listeners listening, surprisingly, thinking, no, that's ridiculous. What a crazy idea. 
And I think that's the point, you know, like it's it's framed in a way and it's presented in a way that is intentionally surprising and provocative. It's this viewpoint essay. It's supposed to capture your attention. It's supposed to make you think, wait, what, really? So um, don't be put off by the fact that it is, it sounds a bit ridiculous. I think that's actually the point. It's, it's uh, putting out a bit of intrigue into your mind when it first hits you. So we should we should hit them with the bubble sort example because that's like we've been saying, hey everybody, you know this is going to be a little bit absurd, and we haven't yet any we haven't given an example to show like absurd how like what do you mean? Oh, it's all well and good to say abstractly, yeah, robustness and efficiency of this trade off, and it'd be nice to to try and be conscious of that trade off. But there's this uh, example where. Bubble sort as opposed to merge sort and uh, quick sort is like significantly slower because bubble sort does just a ton more comparisons, right? Like it always takes a pair of adjacent elements in a list that need that it's trying to sort and it compares that pair of adjacent elements and if they're in the wrong order, it swaps them and it just does that over and over and over again. And the algorithm is like just super duper simple. Whereas quick sort and merge sort are a little bit more clever and through that cleverness, they avoid doing a whole bunch of redundant checks, right? Because bubble sort, as the list gets more and more sorted, you're going to be frequently comparing elements that are already in the right order. And merge sort and quick sort try not to do that, right? If your list is already mostly sorted, quick sort and merge sort are going to just blast through it. But bubble sort is so much more tolerant to faults that can occur in the hardware that's executing it or that can occur in a component that collaborates with it. And as an example, um, Ackley suggests, like, what if you had sorting happening where the function that is checking the elements to see whether they're, like, that checks a pair of elements to see whether they're sorted correctly returned the wrong answer 10% of the time? And if you run quick sort or merge sort with that kind of faulty comparator, you end up getting tons and tons and tons of errors. So if you have 52 items, like a deck of cards, and you sort them all, and then measure, like, how many errors do you get? This is total card positioning error. So it's like, how far off are these cards is the idea. So like, this is five positions off, or this, you know, it should have been five up or down in, in order. Quick sort gets like 250 something errors, merge sort gets like 180 something errors, and bubble sort gets like 10 errors. Because that little bit of extra work that bubble sort does, where it does all those extra comparisons, just gives it more chances to recover from that erroneous result from that faulty comparator. But even if you run quick sort and merge sort multiple times in a row, the error rates don't improve all that much. They improve maybe another 50% or something like that. So there's something about bubble sort that is just like inherently more robust to failure than quick sort and merge sort. Yeah, and do you know what I like is uh, earlier on, Ackley says about how, you know, when sorting a long list, either one, merge sort or quick sort, blows the doors off bubble sort. Later on, he shows this graph of bubble sort being way more robust than those two and follows with the line now whose doors have fallen off <laughs> <laughs> it's like a very long long setup 
And he actually does say that if you repeat about six times with uh, Quicksort or Merge Sort and take the most common answer, you do get competitive with Bubble Sort. Uh, But he calls that uh, a cheap hack, an after-the-fact fix tailored to one situation. But I think this is interesting because, like, in the worst case with Quicksort, you get, like, 250 positions off. But when we're talking about comparing efficiency between quicksort and bubble sort, he tells us that, you know, if you try to sort a billion numbers and you try to do it with bubble sort, you're just going to take forever. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you try to do it with quicksort, he says it took under 10 minutes on my laptop. I looked up, I see people having like in, like you can do in like Java in like 30 seconds on modern things right like this is a very very fast thing whereas if you still try to do bubble sort you're basically never gonna get an answer at a billion things (laughs) so i think this is makes this even more stark to me which is like quick sort and merge sort yes they did they were less robust but they weren't like exponentially less robust in a lot of ways like yes they were for this small thing but if we amplify numbers it's not as bad and yet still the argument here is like their efficiency gains aren't worth it even though they're quite a lot more efficient we don't want that we want robustness and i i I think the thing that was a little confusing to me at this point is like why and i'm curious if any of you all can articulate like why do we care that bubble sort can you know weather this incorrect comparison operator yeah so i think one way i interpret this and i i want to step back a little bit is this viewpoint essay is introducing a new kind of way of measuring software ackley introduces this concept of ceo and he states that currently at the point of writing The goal of software is CEO, which stands for correctness and efficiency only. And, you know, the first example, comparing the efficiency of these different sorting algorithms, he's looking at efficiency. He's then presenting, we can measure these in another way that you may not have thought about called robustness. And it's sort of just introducing this new idea that I guess I had never thought about and in, in my experience, people often haven't thought about what if we have some error? I think in the video he says, or he opens it with, why do computers crash? Is it something we just have to deal with? When is it okay to deal with it? When is it actually really important that it doesn't happen? And is there a way that we can rate different software in that scale? Not just speed, not just correctness, assuming nothing goes wrong. Because in reality, things go wrong. In the Myths and Misconceptions episode, we talked about um, the fuzzy edges of software and how they have to interact with the real world. And this robustness concept, I think, is trying to tackle that. I think that's part of the why. It is vague, though. He says it could be for any reason. Yeah, I'm kind of reminded of, you know, the kind of Erlang let it crash 
uh, mentality, but on steroids, right? Like this is like Erlang's like, okay, we have these little processes and they can crash and we bring them back up. But this is saying like, let's go even further. Let's assume that like we have software and like we hit it with x-rays and random bits just change, right? Let's assume that we have software and like we... We have hardware that we can't actually depend on giving us a deterministic answer. We have any number of things could just break at any moment. How can our software deal with this? And I, as I was looking more, and I, I don't think it's actually ever explicitly stated in, in this paper, but the idea is like this is the only way uh, that we're going to, I guess it's stated a little bit, but that we're going to like get beyond the scale of computing we're at right now. Right now, everything we do, even with our supercomputers, even with open AIs, clusters, etc., is, according to David Agley, like small-scale computing. We need to get beyond this to get these massive computations. And at that point, the centralized manner of these things won't work. We cannot make decisions where we have to submit everything to CPU or we have to grab everything out of RAM. And anything we have right now is a hack on top of that. If you look at like, you know, the Jepson test, look at all these databases and all the failure cases they have in these distributed systems. I think you could see this as like the hack, right? We're trying to take these systems that are supposed to be deterministic and somehow make them work in the face of all this indeterminism and this paper is arguing kind of like we should start from the other point. What if our fundamental primitives were unreliable from the beginning and we had to program to adapt to all of this? What systems would we get out at the end? One of the things I had a lot of fun doing as I was reading this was trying to think of some of my own examples of places where this trade-off has come up and then trying to find like, okay, what are the common themes about those places I'm thinking up? Which is, of course, like, yeah, of course there's going to be themes because I'm the one thinking it up and I'm going to get onto a train of thought. And that's where all the examples are going to come from. So there's probably great examples that I totally missed. But some of the very first ones that I thought of were like RAID. So if you have a RAID array of disks, you have to choose, depending on which RAID mode you pick, do you want the space to be used redundantly so that you can be resilient to failure of a disk, right? Every, every disk in your RAID array gets mirrored. So if one of them fails, you have a backup copy versus do you want to stripe the data between your disks so that you can read that data out twice as fast because you can parallelize those reads between your disks, which is like, you know, um, even in the era of the SSD, that's still a, a huge performance win. And so there's that trade-off, right? Do you want it to go faster or do you want it to be more resilient to failure? Another one is cap theorem, right? If you have a distributed system, a bunch of nodes that need to communicate and there's some admission that like, okay, sending a message from one node to the other is going to take time and it's going to go over an unreliable connection. And so there's a likelihood that that communication could fail. There's different ways you can structure the communication so that you either have like, if it's a web service, right? And there's requests coming in and this is, you know, these servers need to occasionally coordinate to be like, oh, somebody just added an item to their shopping cart. I need to like update the, the database and then the database nodes need to all communicate with each other and say, oh yeah, there's a new item in the shopping cart. Everybody catch up with that. Do you want those distributed database nodes that have to like gossip changes to each other to be more available so that 
if you know there's a network failure or something like that, nodes will still respond even if they have partial data, right? Like the new item in the shopping cart hasn't been updated everywhere. Do you want availability so that those nodes will still respond with the shopping cart contents and some of them will say, oh, it doesn't have that item and other ones will say, yes, it does. Or do you want like consistency and correctness? where you say, hey, we're not going to actually admit that the shopping cart has that item in it until all the nodes know about that item. And we're going to wait until we've got confirmation that everybody knows it before we say, yeah, the shopping cart has that thing. And that trade-off between availability and, and consistency, you have to choose. You can't have both. <laughs> that's, the, that's the cap theorem. I, ha I, have a con I have a confession. Yeah. And you can't, you can't tell Dave this. Okay. <laughs> right. So this paper, it's arguing against efficiency. You know, it's, it's championing robustness. However, me reading and learning from this paper has actually helped me to write more efficient code. Oh! <laughs> and, and, like, prioritize more efficiency sometimes, which uh, I feel like I'm betraying the robust first cause, but... Let me explain, right? So I think bef before I discovered this whole new school of thought about thinking about this trade-off, this other measure of robustness versus efficiency, I always thought, you know, to write faster code, code that runs fast, you just need to know, I don't know, the tricks. You need to be a better programmer. You know, it, my code is slow because I suck or something. And through discovering this other measure of robustness and this trade-off, just made it a lot easier for me to figure out how to make things more efficient. Because I know how to make things more robust. You add redundancy, you lean into the error, you lean into the non-determinism. So it's quite easy to just flip that. And when I want to make my code run faster now, I'm looking for places to remove that and to make it less robust. And it feels wrong. And, you know, <laughs> I would never admit this to Professor Ackley. But, you know, it's, it's changed the way I think about the code that I write. It, I think it's good whether we're trying to be efficient whether, or robust or correct or whatever. I think it's good to have this extra measure of robustness so that you know what you're sacrificing or you know what you're gaining. Yeah, like you're conscious that there's a trade-off now mm -hmm. as opposed to it just being invisible as it is to probably most programmers or at least unacknowledged and backwardsly automatically, intuitively, just doing the efficiency thing, not even knowing that you could, if you wanted to, get even more efficiency by getting rid of more robustness. Go, Don't go looking for opportunities to make things faster. Go look for opportunities to make things less robust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I just have to cross my fingers when I do it. Yeah, I, I think that this is, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at these things. And I do think it's super helpful to realize where we have redundancy, where we're copying things we don't need to. You know, these are often the, the causes of our, our slowdowns. But I think it's I think there's a really interesting idea here that I wish was more explicitly argued for uh, in this paper, but I think there is this kind of argument for it that like it is that sort of removing of redundancy that leads to these software errors but that it's not like a programmer's fault. It's not that like bad, you know, we write buggy software or that 
you know, users are stupid and do the wrong things that cause all these software problems. At the core is just the von Neumann model of computation. That this is the ultimate culprit that caused all this problem. And I, I know that there's a, there's a paper that's definitely on my list for later maybe to read, which I can't remember who wrote it, but can programming be rescued from the von Neumann model? Uh, I think is the name of the, the paper. Do you... Can programming be liberated from the von Neumann style? And that that's a, I can't remember. Who, who wrote that? Do you remember, Ivan? Uh, I did. Um... Okay. <laughs> you wrote it. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, That's a robustness first answer. <laughs> yeah, you can only you can only you know answer what you have local information. To quote Ackley, mm-hmm. uh, a mistaken person gives wrong directions even if you repeat the question. So yeah, I I wrote this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so John Backus wrote this in 1977. It's a ACM Turing Award lecture. Ah. Um, so luckily, I have access to non-local information here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I think this is really interesting. And this is really, you could see this research here as kind of um, taking that question and saying, yes, but we don't quite know how yet. Like what we get here is not an ultimate answer to how can, what's the alternative, right? What, how could we get rid of the CPU? How could we get rid of RAM? But we get some suggestive hints in this paper, and I know you all have watched some of Ackley's stuff as well, so I'm, I'm going to use rely on some of that. And it's this, uh, you know, the things, the demos I saw are kind of this cellular automata basis, and we see that even von Neumann was interested in this being the model of computing going forward. And so what you have instead of a central processing unit where you have access to this memory and there's these caches that are all local to you and you can guarantee, quote unquote, some certain deterministic output depending on all of these things. Instead, you get these tiny little computers that are all interacting with each other and can all scale and connect interchangeably together. And so the computer itself is small, it has very limited resources, and it can only see its little world, and it has to accomplish its goals not by taking control, not by becoming the leader, but by cooperating with all of the bits around us. And I'm reminded, if you've seen the talk from uh, Gerald Sussman on we don't know how to compute yet, or something like that. No, I haven't. Okay, this is, uh, it's like 2011. Uh, and, and Sussman here says, it's, it's quoted in uh, Brett Victor's The Future of Programming. Which I also haven't read. <laughs> it's the one Brett Victor thing I refuse to read because what? It's, it's bad. <laughs> really? <laughs> Wait, is this another robust first answer? I don't know now. No, no, I see. I, well, okay, so I have read it. You really haven't watched? Watched. Read. Watched. Wait, which one are you talking about? The the talk that he gave where he dresses up in a suit and has an overhead projector. Oh, crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I have seen that one. I was thinking about the essay Learnable Programming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. both have programming in the name, and I just snapped a grid. Uh-huh. Learnable Programming is bad. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think it's there that he quotes. No, maybe it's not that one. Anyways, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but someone quotes it and says, you know, I, I got this 
Or was it a hitchy, hickey talk? I don't remember. Now I'm all confused. Extraordinary claims without evidence may be rejected without evidence. Yeah, let's don't get on that tangent, because I'll just... Uh... <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> Sussman says that eventually we're going to be buying our compute by the bushel, and that these computers will just be in the paint of the wall, and they'll we'll add compute to our wall by painting it on. Right, this is, this is the idea. It was not that talk, but anyways. Yeah, this is kind of Ackley's model, is... Something like that. So I've got th- this idea that like robustness and ro- and the trade-off in particular come up frequently and prominently in cases where you're doing distributed computing. That was the the thing I was building to when talking about like oh yeah these different examples that I found they're all they all come up in cases of distributed computing, right? Um, the other ones I had were like auto merge and foundation DB. And Byzantine fault tolerance, right? Which which Ackley even talks a little bit about and uh, references some some work about that. That when you have lots of tiny computers and there's communication between them, just because physics, communication is fallible. If for no other reason than just like, oh, I lost my network connection in the middle of transmission or whatever, or somebody unplugged an Ethernet cable. And Foundation DB, if anybody hasn't seen, there'll be a link in the show notes to a talk from Strange Loop about how they engineered Foundation DB by building the most unreliable server rack possible and then only <laughs> running their software on that rack as they were developing it, where it's like you could unplug the network cable or the power or smash the hard drive or anything like that at any time, and it had to be robust to that kind of failure. And then they, what they set out as a goal was, like, let's guarantee perfect robustness against that adversarial environment and then make it fast and then make it go as fast as possible given a certain minimum threshold of robustness, which is a really cool approach as opposed to let's make it fast and then try and bring robustness up a little bit, which is like, that's your YJS versus auto merge debate right there. Yeah. And and this is the robust first creed. It's it's um I, I I'm gonna try and Google it right now. Okay. But it begins with something like first be robust, right? I I'm just gonna Google like. Listen to that keyboard clacking. No. You carry on for a second. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. Uh, oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. Wow, that, that feels really good to know that I'm actually doing a good job at podcasting. All right, I found it. <laughs> Too bad. All right. <laughs> the robust first computing creed. First be robust, then as correct as possible, then as efficient as necessary. It's not saying don't be efficient. It's just saying be robust first, then you're allowed to be efficient. And, and the example uh, you just described just really reminds me of that. So the thing that I also found, I only thought of one or two examples of things that are kind of about this robustness, um, correctness, efficiency trade-off that aren't in the context of a distributed system. And one of them is constraint solver programming, and the other one is John Carmack's approach to optimizing game performance. I can talk a bit about what each of those are, but they're both cases where robustness is not the concern, but correctness versus efficiency is. And so I'm curious if either of you have any examples of cases where robustness is the concern, but it's not a distributed system. Because it's easy to think of like, oh yeah, distributed systems are fallible, therefore we we need robustness, and from robustness you get correctness, and from correctness, you know, you get 
the desirable outcome of your program. But like, are there cases where we worry about failures of robustness that aren't about distributed systems? I mean, in some sense, everything's a distributed system. That's what makes this hard, right? Except, except for the, like, the abstract model of the von Neumann architecture, right? Well, even then, because like, you know, the example I'm going to give is persisting to disk. Okay. Right. You have to, there's all sorts of things you have to do. Like you can find all sorts of things uh, about how like F-sync is not enough to persist to disk properly. And you can look at all these tricks that databases that are production grade do to make sure, you know, you got the write ahead log and you got like all of these things to ensure that like, yes, this really is on disk. And if something fails, I have it on disk. And that's ignoring distributing it. It's ignoring like needing it on multiple machines. It's just a single node system. Yeah. And yet you have to do all of this because yeah. the storage is distributed in some sense. Yeah, that's what I mean, right? Yes. Like it's, it's because of cache hierarchies and because of RAM versus disk, yeah. what have you. And that is in the, that all of that is the von Neumann model. I disagree because the von Neumann model just assumes a single pool of storage and a single compute unit a la the like Turing machine, right? Like von Neumann architecture doesn't, it, it, it's just talking about like uh, your, um, you have memory and you have compute and they're separate. It's about the hierarchy. That's, that's like the thing that von Neumann. So von Neumann's architecture is like, all right, you want for this much hard drive space, you want approximately this much RAM and you need more hard drive space than the RAM so that if you have to page out uh, or swap and then it's like, okay, have this much in your L3 cache hierarchy and this much in your L2 and your L1 and then this much register space and then... Okay, from from uh, the Wikipedia article... <laughs> <laughs> the document describes a design architecture for the electronic computer with these components, a CPU for stuff, a central unit for instruction register and program counter, memory for data and instructions, external mass storage, and then input-output devices. All right, so we're both wrong. So like, it already has this built-in... <laughs> well, no, it already has this built-in hierarchy of the close thing, which is our the registers... The, you have the processor registers, and then you have the instruction registers one level out, and then you have the memory, the RAM, and then you have the external mass storage. Mm. Like it has that idea. That was that's the big thing about von Neumann is the memory hierarchy, mm. because you have to have this All right. slower moving and faster moving stuff cooperating together. So let's let's ignore von Neumann for a minute. Turing and Church and Gödel and uh, those other sort of abstract models of computation are not inherently distributed. And it makes me wonder if there is a, if there are any like uh, concrete computers, like any, not abstract models, but actual physical computers that aren't distributed. Because I'm really interested in this question of like, is there a case where robustness, specifically robustness, not uh, correctness, matters other than in the case of distribution? And I'm, I'm trying to think of any examples of that. I think here's the thing. As we have discussed on the myths paper, you know, what is intended to be and what is theoretically supposed to happen with software is often not what actually ends up happening. You know, we're humans, we're, we make mistakes. And even if it's not a distributed system, they're probably intended to be helpful to a person or another system in some way 
You know, we're not just making these things to exist in a vacuum, right? So the, the number of times I have, you know, built, coded a new engine for a new creative coding thing or a little game, and I often start by trying to eliminate redundancy in some way because I'm, I'm trying to be clever and I'm trying to make it run smartly, you know? So like a classic example is... You know, I don't need to re-render everything every frame, or I don't need to recalculate the position of these certain things every frame. I don't need to um, recalculate the order of, and this was a real one that happened to me. I had, I made a little, just simple, like two D game engine. It just drew sprites, and it needed to keep the order of these sprites right on the screen. And I, and I came up with a clever way. I will just sort of keep track of the order and just keep track of certain things, so I don't need to like sort them every frame, you know, because sorting, <laughs> it's really fast, but you know, it's even faster to not do it, you know, which is kind of stupid, right? But like, you know, I thought this is so clever. This is so smart. I'll sacrifice some robustness and redundancy and I'll just do it once instead of on every frame. And I did that for about a week. And then I realized that somewhere in the code, somewhere I was making a mistake and I was and I was sort and I was putting them into the wrong order. And and I spent like a day trying to find the place I was doing it wrong. And then I realized, wait a second, I could just I could just sort them every frame. It's completely redundant. It's because of a mistake I made somewhere else. But you know what? Just just be robust, you know, just do it again and again and again. And it, the only person using that was me. The only it was only it only works on one computer. I think this robustness, it can happen on a small scale, it can happen on a big scale. Like, it can happen on a little one line, like, well, one function little helper you write for yourself to make an RSS feed, which I did in the last couple of weeks. Or it could be like, hey, we, we have these, like, data centers that we need to all be working and all be talking to each other. I think it's a gen, it's like, it's a general concept. You know, those things can be efficient, they can or not efficient, they can be robust or not robust. Um, so I would say, you know, you can rate every program on robustness. <laughs> and it's it's a it's a question of priority, I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll put out one example, I think fairly similar to what you were saying, Lou, on a robustness trade-off that's not distributed. And then I have another example that's very different that I think is also a, a good robustness example. But I wrote an editor and I needed color like syntax highlighting. And so what did I do? I wrote a parser to parse it out and I just parsed on every single frame. And when I parsed on every single frame, it was always right. In my new version of the editor, I have tried to have uh, Rust analyzer support. So like this LSP and it has semantic highlighting with tokens. And now... I have something that when I edit it, I need to update those tokens because I don't yet have from Rust Analyzer the answer on what it's going to be. But, and I get I had to deal with so many errors that just I didn't have to deal with because I was just, yeah, just reparse the whole entire text every single time from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> and like I can do that at a thousand frames per second, like on a reasonable Rust file, like without writing anything smart from my parser. Like it was the dumbest parser. And so, like, yes, like, it was robust to any of those things. I, once I got the parser working, I never had to touch any of that code ever again, whereas this token code I'm still just messing with. And, like, 
in some ways it's an efficiency trade-off because like I'm not doing it every single time and I'm just getting deltas of tokens and that's the way that Rust Analyzer talks to me. And uh, But it also is like so much worse in so many ways. Uh, the other one though that I think is arguably if we ignore like the fact that CPUs and stuff are distributed, blah, 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 is arguably a robustness without talking about a distributed systems are like the control computers in uh, space, space shuttles, like the space shuttle and like Apollo and stuff. They had multiple computers all running the same program and they had to have a quorum before they would do this. And the idea was because like, oh, actually having gamma rays and stuff hitting your computer <laughs> actually can happen, right? And so it, this was kind of like an ad hoc mechanism afterwards instead of having something that would have been robust in the face of these kinds of things, we throw in redundancy to try to get that robustness trade-off. Now, I've seen research that suggests this doesn't uh, like one of the th ways people have talked about writing this is not running the same program, but having like four different groups of programmers write the same program. Wow. And this claimed, uh, this study claimed that they, that didn't work uh, because the errors people make are almost always correlated around the hard parts. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, and so the parts that are wrong are more likely to be wrong in independent implementations. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So like you think you're you like, and I don't know if I believe it or not, but like I, because part of what they talked about is like the programming language made it hard. So you could maybe try it in different programming languages and different parts are going to be hard, blah, blah, blah. But it's interesting because here, again, this feels like this ad hoc approach where we're trying to build in redundancy into systems that don't have it baked into the core. And I, I think this is what's so interesting about, like, let's throw out the von Neumann model and let's, like, have hardware that isn't reliable. That's, like, one of the suggestions here. Yeah. And it reminds me of... Foundation DB, that talk from Strange Loop where they did that and it was amazing. <laughs> it reminds you of that, Jimmy. It also reminds me of Haskell and their choice to have laziness. This was a choice not because they were like, oh, okay, well, um, they wanted purity in a language and they wanted laziness. Uh, well, really, they chose laziness to force them to make sure that the language was pure. That's the idea. That making a pure, strict language would have been easier but once you have this laziness, as soon as you have these like potential I.O., like it, you get all sorts of problems. So you have to have this purity. So I, I think of this same sort of thing. I, I said I butchered that explanation. But I think this is kind of this you know forcing thing here where if our hardware were not reliable from the beginning, how would we change the way we compute? I wonder if you could get that without having to go to hardware. Like could you make – like Lou – approaches the design of their spatial programming experiments and and various other things by starting with the virtual machine and then building the interface, which is the backwards way to do it. It works for them, <laughs> I have been told. It works great. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. So could Lou make an unreliable VM and that be the forcing function that that makes them build a robust interface on top of it? Now I want to try that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that this is one of the things that's actually asymmetrical here that I find interesting is that's very easy to do, right? It is so easy, given our deterministic, correct uh, CEO software, 
to write something that isn't always going to guarantee you those things. It's very easy for me to throw in random faults. It's very easy for me to throw out random bits. It's very easy for me to corrupt random memory. On the other side, if my hardware by default does that, recovering these things is impossible. Now, when I say impossible, I mean guaranteeing it, making sure it's always the case, right? Now, what we can do is we can start approaching it asymptotically. We can start getting better and better, and we can have different models that can make sure that most likely these things happen. Um, I know in distributed systems with consensus, you can't gain common knowledge with a deterministic protocol, but if you have an indeterministic one, you can gain this knowledge with a probability of one, things like that. There's like results where you can like use the indeterminacy to help you gain something. Uh, but yeah, I find that actually like, it makes me stop and say, I guess is robust first the right answer? Because one is more powerful than the others. No, yeah, yeah, no. I think I think the spaceship example, although it's like a bit exotic, it is um, a good way of thinking about the kind of errors that you want to happen. So, like, say you were on a spaceship, or, like, even worse, you were on a spacewalk in a spacesuit, and you have a little computer that tells you how much oxygen you've got left. You know, you maybe you have 99% of your tank is full, or maybe you have 1% of your tank is full. That is something that you would want to be pretty accurate. You wouldn't want that to be completely wrong. You wouldn't want it to say you have 80% when you actually have 2% left. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, and vice versa. And I think in robustness, the idea is that you're still going to have mistakes. There are still going to be mistakes in code. Code goes wrong. Things go wrong. Shit happens. But considering that mistakes do happen, what kind of error would you want? Now, in CEO software, when something goes wrong, it goes completely wrong. Because we have certain assumptions about everything being right all the time. If there's an error, it's not going to show you 99%. It's going to show you 1%. Or it's not going to show you 1%. It's going to show you not a number percent, you know? Whereas with robust first computing, it's probably always going to be a bit wrong because of this non-determinism. But it's only going to be a tiny bit wrong. You know, so maybe, oh, so what? It says 99% when you're on 98%. But at least it doesn't say 99% when you're actually on 0%. And I think that's the idea. It's what kind of mistake do you want to happen? That's um, similar to what you get out of systems that use uh, constraint solvers and gradient descent, which is something I've been doing a little bit of recently. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. I haven't been doing it. I I have been on a team uh, with uh, Alex Worth, and Alex Worth has been doing it and uh, doing a very good job of it. <laughs> so I won't take credit, except I will. Oh. But using gradient descent, the idea is you don't care about getting, or at least no, one of the things that you can do with gradient descent is say, I don't care about getting an exact, like a precisely calculated answer because there are all kinds of different math where you can't do that, right? At least not on a computer. You might be able to do it with symbolic algebra. You might be able to do it by like manipulating terms in an abstract way. But if you want to actually do calculation, there's a whole class of things you can do that aren't, or that you want to do that aren't closed form and can't be 
like, you know, straightforwardly calculated, but you can approximate them. And if you can model them using gradient descent and you say like, you know, here's my function and here's the curved shape that it has through space. And I want to, you know, slide down a hill and find a, you know, a local minimum of error. And that's good enough. That way of working gives you that property where you won't get exactly the quote unquote correct answer, but you'll get an answer that's close enough. And if you build your system, assuming that you're only ever going to have close enough answers, it's very enabling. Like it enables you to do a whole bunch of things that you couldn't otherwise do if you were depending on correctness. So it's, to me, this is interesting because it's like, it's not just a trade-off between, you know, the behavioral properties of your system. It's like, there are some systems that are inexpressible if you require a certain notion of correctness that are expressible if you relax that correctness requirement. I, I'm, I struggle with this kind of, this idea of robustness because when I hear things like, you know, you only want it to be off by a little bit, that makes perfect sense to me, right? I can completely imagine systems where I've said, okay, uh, you know, I want to put in some safeguards here. So if I see something anomalous, I maybe ignore it. Right. Like, and it might be right, but like, I'm not going to, it could also be like a phase transition in the system and I don't want to go into that. So I'm going to like, you know, whatever I can imagine where you can reduce error and make sure that it doesn't propagate through the whole system and cause all sorts of issues. But when I see things like the bubble sort example, it's slightly different than that. So the bubble sort example, we get one run here of doing a comparison with this 10% failed comparisons. And we see that in this one run, bubble sort did better than merge sort and quick sort. But that's not always the case. There is a case, if we kind of like abuse big O notation here for a second, there, there is a case where like in the best, well, I guess first, in the best case, bubble sort does O of N comparisons. This is when the list is already sorted. Well, we can imagine a list that's already sorted, and we get, yes, absolutely unprobabilistically unlucky, but it <laughs> technically can happen. It's one possible run where we hit that failure chance every single time. We have an already sorted list, and we do bubble sort, and we hit that failure case every single time, and now our list is complete. We went from a sorted list to a completely unsorted list. Yeah. And in fact, it might have, it will be even worse because it's going to constantly do all these comparisons and it actually might, I, does it actually, if we got the, you know, I know I'm like, you, I'm saying 10% and now I'm saying we happen to get that 10%, you know, <laughs> a bunch of times in a row, but it wouldn't end. It would, it wouldn't terminate if we always swapped it around, right? If we crank that failure rate up to a hundred percent, bubble sort will never end for sure. I guess none of them will, but yeah. anyways, it'll never end and it will be inefficient doing it. Whoa. But I, I guess like you're not actually, you're minimizing the, ch the probability that you get a large error is low, but you're not actually saying it can't ever have a large error. There are runs of bubble sort where it gets a much larger error. It's just improbable that that happens. And I guess that's the thing that kind of confuses me about this robust idea is there's there's no guarantee that we get up an approximate answer. Hold on a sec. <laughs> You're saying none of them will ever terminate. Well, I, that was like a silly example if we took it up to 100%. But yeah, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. But this, there's, there's something interesting here. 
so let's instead of saying it returns, you know, oh, if I'm sorting a list of numbers, instead of returning, you know, is A less than B, it returns as A greater than B every time. That's one kind of 100% failure, but there's a different kind of 100% failure, which is that the comparator always just returns false, right? Because if, you, if it returns like A greater than B instead of A less than B, all three of these will terminate. They'll just sort the list backwards. They'll sort it, you know, descending instead of ascending or whatever, right? Uh -huh. But if it always returns false, I think merge sort and insertion sort will eventually stop, um, or not merge sort and insertion sort, quick sort and, and merge sort will eventually stop because they work based on the assumption that it's like, after we've checked two things and we have our answer, we don't have to check them again. Mm -hmm. Whereas bubble sort is going to keep checking them again and again and again until until it, it, it determines that it's true, right? Until it's like checked every pair and gotten a true result. Yeah. I, mm. Which means merge sort and quick sort will terminate with a wrong answer and bubble sort will never <laughs> terminate because it's still robust to giving you a wrong answer. Or another way of looking at that is that if we, that bubble quick sort and merge sort are more robust in the face of swapping a, comp a mess up in our comparator code that replaces it with a constant false. Because what they'll do is they'll give you something that's closer to an answer than what bubble sort will give you, which is no answer. I don't agree with that. Did you see that uh, AI that they got, they got it to play Tetris, right? And they got it to try and learn how to win. And you know, like, you can't win Tetris. <laughs> you can only <laughs> lose. So you know what it did, right? It just kept playing forever? It or? just never played. No, it just paused. It just paused uh... the game. <laughs> that's what bubble sort does if it figures out that it's rubbish. You know, if there's no winning. Yeah. Have you seen this uh, Demon Horde Sort thing? Demon Horde Sort, I believe it's called. I have not seen Demon Horde Sort. Yeah, I did look at this. Cellular automata sorting, almost. All right, now it's the sound of my keyboard clicking. Demon. <laughs> but but hold on. I want a pigeonhole on this rope. No, I want a pigeonhole. I want a pigeonhole. No, no, we can do both. <laughs> if, let's assume, which is true in the real world, that a lot of our lists are approximately sorted, right? If we just always return false, quick and merge sort, we'll return the original list and they'll be approximately sorted. Bubble sort would return nothing. Bubble sort wouldn't return. Yes, it would return nothing. It would never return. That's different than returning nothing, hickey. Okay. <laughs> it's not. Peyton Jones. It's not different than returning nothing. It wouldn't. It returns nothing because it doesn't return. But uh, anyways, I, I think that you have to consider, and I think even Ackley in this paper would consider, in that scenario, quick sort and merge sort being more robust to handling that failure. We should ask him. Yeah, 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 yeah. I actually don't know. I actually don't know. Yeah, we should ask him. So there's a thing that I wanted to wrap. Did you did you finish your pigeonhole, Jimmy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so there's a thing that I want to wormhole on, mm -hmm. which is uh, I've got two examples, maybe 2.5 examples of things that are like not distributed systems where some of these trade-offs come up that I want to, that I want to meow, meow, meow. Um, one of them is John Carmack's talking about uh, how to, do performance optimization. Oh my god, I completely forgot about this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is this is woo. This has gone into somewhere else. You said this ages ago. You mean this podcast has a, a correct order? 
that that things are supposed to go in. Yeah. This is what always happens when the paper is either one, not structured well, or two, too short to just walk through it, which in this case, this is well structured, <laughs> just too yeah. short to spend a whole episode just walking through the paper. Yeah. I have some things to respond to for from over an hour ago but I'm going to save them. <laughs> we haven't even been recording for over an hour, I say, because I'm going to edit it down. We're being robust in terms yeah. of yeah. our conversation. We can always so the, come back. See? The car- Nothing gets lost. The, so <laughs> ca- carry on. The Carmack thing. <clears throat> this podcast is never going to end. Um, <laughs> we're robust against a bad episode. If we never end the episode, it can't be a bad episode. That's true. That's true. Um, that's true. So this, this Carmack thing is most people, when they are optimizing code, what they do is they try and eke out every little performance win that they can, right? Like they run some micro benchmark or whatever, or they look at, you know, they, they run a flame graph and they look at, you know, a particularly typical frame or uh, run and they try and find, okay, where's the the hot path through my code? How do I make that less hot? How do I, you know, find some case where I'm like, you know, N squared looping within a loop or whatever and flatten it out or what have you. And they do that process. And what, and what tends to happen is that you get much better average case performance, but you'll still have these spikes of worst case performance. And Carmack's approach is that you should, Instead, try and do the opposite, that you want as little variability as possible, you, not, you know, better average case. And that if you take this mindset of like prefer, you know, minimizing your variability, most of the typical kind of performance optimizations that you do no longer work because they, they'll, they'll, they'll lead you to basically the kind of case where it's like, oh, uh, I'm going to do my GC in a way where it's like, I don't run GC on every frame because that's slow. Instead, if I save up GC and only do it every once in a while, overall, the performance of the system will be better, but I'll occasionally have these big pauses where I do GC. And that's bad if what you care about is very uniform execution of your program, which is an interesting thing that like matters to Carmack because in games, you know, it's better to have a stable frame rate than a fast frame rate that occasionally has big hiccups in it. Like that just feels bad. But I think this is something that comes up in other cases also. And it's a lens that I'm fond of. And so I just wanted to suggest that that is a place where it's not trading off robustness versus efficiency, but it is trading off maybe correctness versus efficiency or, or it's one of these like places where you can trade off against efficiency. That seems relevant the other one bubble sort will terminate i'll just sort the list backwards <laughs> did you just implement that i just googled a python implementation of bubble sort and then i modified it and we were just thinking of it having some sort of while loop but it just does two nested for loop, like a nested for loop setup doesn't that depend on how you implement bubble sort i mean this is like canonical bubble sort canonical head head cannon bubble sort <laughs> yeah <laughs> if it goes through if it, it all it does is like it once it goes through some iteration, if it never swapped anything while it was walking down, then it can terminate early. Uh, Otherwise, it knows that if it does all the possible, all those combinations, it will end up sorted. It knows. And so I just made it so it swaps every single time and always th- knows that it swapped. Mm-hmm. And then it just starts the list backwards. So it gets the exact 
wrong oh. amount. Now I would need to compare it to merge sort and quick sort. I would actually bet they probably do the same thing-ish, but it's hard to know. So what's the name of the sort that does the thing that I was talking about? Uh, I think Bogo sort is the most robust sort. No. <laughs> <laughs> Am I the only person who finds Bogosort not funny? <laughs> yes. I would say. I don't find Bogosort funny. I find it dreadfully unfunny. How, how is it unfunny? It's like one of the most recommended things for Dreambird. Yeah. I, oh, it, do, it doesn't make the list. Sorry. Oh, you just ran, you throw your data up in the air, and if it lands in, you know, the shape of a Mona Lisa or a Shakespeare or whatever, then you can shoot the monkeys, right? I don't. What about pancakes? sort okay what's pancake sort it flips the list repeatedly and if it lands in the right sort order <laughs> it's actually like a legit it's not like a, a fake one you can actually use it uh but it is based on the idea of flipping over stacks stacks of pancakes yeah that's fine right like okay so jonathan blow has a fantasia oh god <laughs> does he yeah so oh. I, I was listening to this Jonathan Blow talk, and this is going to segue into my other rabbit hole. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to segue. Um, Jonathan Blow was talking about how he doesn't visualize things in his head and how that forces him to work with artists in a certain way. And I found this all very interesting and kind of unnerving. <laughs> forces him to make terrible mistakes. Yeah, no, and no. to keep bringing up the witness when he shouldn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that he's, you know, sworn to stop bringing up the witness. And so... So he has this game that he made called Braid. And in Braid, there's this time travel that you can do where you can like, you know, be running around and jumping on enemies and doing all these things. And then you die. But when you die, you don't start over again. Just time pauses. And it's like, hold down this button to rewind time. And you rewind back. It's like playing the tape of your gameplay backwards. And whenever you want, you can stop rewinding and then go, oh, okay, I'm going to pick up from here and keep playing. And it does all sorts of wonderful things with this time travel mechanic. And the way that Blow had to implement this time travel mechanic was, you know, he took a couple of different attempts at it and settled on this idea uh, that's very much like the way that, you know, um, H.264 and other video codecs encode their frames, where you have occasionally these full state snapshots where it's uh, i think in in blow's case it's every two seconds or something like that every every uh 60 frames if the game's running at 30 frames a second you have these full state snapshots and then in between those full state snapshots you have a series of diffs so the full state snapshots are useful because if you're rewinding in the game you can rewind just at normal speed or you can rewind like super duper fast and if you're rewinding super duper fast it's handy to be able to say, jump to this arbitrary position in the past, grab the full state snapshot, and then if you didn't, you know, mean to land exactly on the on the moment in time that that snapshot corresponds to, you can just apply some diffs onto that snapshot and get to the exact point in time you want it. So if you're going, you know, in between two snapshots, you just use some diffs to get there, which is also how video encoding works, right? Where you have full frames that are stored. I can't remember if they're the B frames or the I frames. I should have looked this up. But you have these full frames that are stored. And then in between storing those full frames, you store diffs that apply on top of each other. And in the case of video encoding, those full frame snapshots are sometimes unevenly spaced. Sometimes they only store one at the very beginning. 
sometimes they store one whenever they detect that there's a big change like you know oh we switched from an indoor night scene where it's very dark to an outdoor broad daylight scene where it's very bright instead of packing in a gigantic diff that's going to handle that scene change we'll just put a full state snapshot there and that's that's nicer the thing that this video encoding has that is neat is data moshing which is this practice of only applying diffs but applying them to the wrong content and it's this this technique that's emerged in you know like people doing video collages and remixes and art and all of these things where they take this video encoding and they apply the diffs on the wrong content and you get just weird surrealistic melting trippy <laughs> glitchy visuals out of it it's a case of using the fact that diffs are not robust for an expressive quality where if the video encoding had only ever stored full snapshots that would be the like optimally robust thing but it would be slow right that's a lot of extra data you're storing every frame as a full frame that's kind of like an unencoded video instead most video frames are like very similar to the previous frame and so they just store little tiny diffs and that was an easy efficiency win but that efficiency win gives you an opportunity to hack the matrix and and come up with some cool visual result and we don't often want that in our software because that's like malware or corrupt data or whatever but there are cases where you actually do want to give up robustness because it it gives you a generative interesting result that you wouldn't otherwise get so that's like that's taking like the opposite view of this trade off and seeing what can you do with it that's that's interesting the jonathan blow time travel thing was just in there to irk jimmy that's not actually relevant to the <laughs> example i wanted to give but and me and, and Lou. me and yeah. Lou. get out of here yeah it didn't irk me so oh, uh-huh. oh well, just i'm just robust me. against those kinds of <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm efficient against it. Uh, yeah, I think that example is, yeah, explains the difference. That's basically what happened with my little game engine ordering thing. I was trying to do the diffs thing. It didn't work. So I ended up with some data moshing-esque thing, but but unintentionally. So I just gave up on it. And went back to full snapshots? Yep. <laughs> so I'm curious. I think... I mean, I, 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 there's, you know, little quotes in here in this, you know, position paper that we haven't talked about, but I think we've gotten the idea here across of like, this is, let's put the robustness first. Let's not care about correctness and efficiency only. If we have to make these trade-offs, that's, it's important to do. And that these things are related that like efficiency is going to come in tension with robustness. But I'm curious to hear your all's thoughts on, like, what does a robust future of coding look like? Like, what what do you see as something that we could be doing where we we started robust first? And on that note, I I wrote some things down, some computing concepts slash things. And I want to know if you think they're robust first or not. Okay. Yeah? So... Maybe this could help inform our answers to Jimmy's questions. I, l- I love this total non sequitur. <laughs> right. So first of all, is local first computing robust? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've been, I've, you know, 
I was thinking that throughout our conversation and, and throughout reading this is like local first feels like it's, it's kind of automatically robust first, or at least it, it desires robustness against losing your network connection or against, you know, other, other things that can happen. It's not just about unreliable networking, but it's also about like, you know, you don't surrender your data to somebody else. So if somebody else doesn't want to give you your data, Google, then, well, too bad because you still have your data. So it's like robust against um, the evils of capitalism, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say yes. Yeah, every time, I, every time I try to think about this, I think there's so many different dimensions to be robust on that it's hard to give an answer. And so much of it comes down to like implementation details. So like CRDTs, they with the assumption that you always, you know, end up eventually getting those messages. They are robust in that they'll have a, you know, they'll converge, right? We are not going to have non-convergent data uh, at the end, assuming we get all of the data. But if we never get that data, we might be wildly off what the final result is supposed to be. Um, so that feels non-robust there. Uh, and then though, there's things like, if you look at like the details of implementing these, if you do like a hybrid logical clock, for example, is a popular mechanism for trying to implement how do you get ordering in these things. And hybrid logical clocks are not robust against somebody just arbitrarily saying, it is the year 10,000. <laughs> Because from now on, your whole system thinks it is the year 10,000 and is sending all messages that way. Well, this brings me to my next question perfectly. Is permacomputing robust? I would like you to answer this question, Lou, because I, sure. I don't know enough. Right. Well, I think permacomputing is a kind of computing that attempts to be sustainable. And it takes it extremely seriously. And there's an emphasis on using old hardware, there's an em emphasis on simplicity, there's an emphasis on being able to rebuild things from, from scratch. So I think, in some extents, it is very robust. It's robust from, like, capitalism. It's robust from the end of the world as we know it because of climate change. <laughs> and it's robust against, like, complexity. You know, it's robust against things getting lost in translation, stuff being forgotten. But I think that it also goes at odds with robustness a little bit because there's this huge emphasis on being energy efficient. But in robustness, there's this assumption that we have energy, we can use redundancy because, you know, we have electricity and computers are powerful. But permacomputing is more focused on low energy, it's more focused on slower computers. So there's like a slight tension, but there is an element of robustness there. I think it would be good to try and make them compatible in some way. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the few pink, <laughs> as in bad, <laughs> bad Ackley highlights <laughs> that, that I have in this paper, which is that Ackley says, efficiency is key when demands exceed resources, yet many computers are usually idling. They could have been checking their work, but that's off the radar for CEO software. And just to re refresh the memories of the listener, CEO, correctness and efficiency only. And that like, oh, many computers are idling. They could be using that time to be doing useful work, to which I say... Uh, I, I Turn them off. Yeah. Switch them off. Yeah, like why... <laughs> Maybe. Why... Um, 
I, I, I don't think that that's a compelling argument in favor of, of robustness versus efficiency. I would rather, and the perma computing thing gets to this, I would say that there are many things that we do in computing that have a tremendous cost against both efficiency and robustness. And that identifying those things and getting rid of them is something that the permacomputing culture seems really good at. Is like, because of their relentless focus on simplicity and their desire to be usable on older computing, they've gotten rid of tremendous amounts of that stack, that like, you know, tower of Babel that is modern operating systems and, and, and software frameworks and all of that, where it's, you know, the XKCD about the X86 CPU is screaming along and it's doing, you know, billions of calculations per second and the Servo and Gecko inside Firefox are like, you know, doing this tremendous amount of work to render what ends up being just a, a GIF of a cat jumping into a box. Like the gigantic tower from CPU up to animated GIF is a place where robustness and efficiency both go to die. And that if you thin that stack out and start from, you know, much more primitive hardware with a very simple VM with, you know, some carefully written software on it, you get a lot of robustness back and you get a ton of efficiency back. And I think you can, that's a place where, where people are having some cake and eating it. And then even if they want to sacrifice some efficiency for robustness, they're still way more efficient than, than the modern stack. So I have, a, I have my own creed that I just came up with like 30 seconds ago. Hot off the press. Yeah. It's the, I call it the better computing, computing creed, right? And, and I almost feel like I want to stick something even ahead of robustness. It's first be sustainable then be robust, then correct, then efficient, in that order. and uh, Sustainable meaning? Um, meaning... Meaning permacomputing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't destroy the earth. Yeah. Then make sure your thing can't be destroyed. Y yeah. Then don't destroy your data. Uh -huh. And finally, do your damn job. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Anyway, I'm glad we settled that. <laughs> I, have a, I have one more thing to ask about uh, in terms of is it robust? And it's a weird one, right? Is the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine robust? Whoa. <laughs> this might be the first episode that gets censored from a source other than editor Ivan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have no idea if it is or not. Okay, because there's this insanely interesting blog post article it's an article and it's called reverse engineering the source code of the fiverr sars-cov blah 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 vaccine the fiverr covid F vaccine fiverr. somebody went on fiverr and was like hey can you gig workers come up with a covid vaccine yeah they it's this it. like this horse stuff it's um it's this horse ivermectin no it's not ivermectin no 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 it's it's um ah pcp it's this horse tranquilizer <laughs> and you take that and you have this like wicked hallucination and you listen to the fight club soundtrack because it's really groovy i wish that happened <laughs> dust brothers man am i right they're so good they've got like these you know retro sounding drum machines they're like Thank you.
It's crazy though, right? This article is talking about this vaccine, which is made with the programming language DNA, right? And there is a hugely different set of priorities to this programming language than the ones we typically use, right? Like, let me read you this bit. It says, at the end of the protein, we find a stop codon, a stop instruction, denoted here by a lowercase s. This is a polite way of saying that the protein should end here. The original virus uses the UAA stop codon, but the vaccine uses two UGA stop codons, perhaps just for good measure. Right, it gives the stop instruction twice. There's this redundancy, <laughs> because if there's something you really don't want to fuck up, it's stuff that you inject into your body, right? Yes. There's something else, right? That the very end of the, the vaccine, it just ends quite humorously with loads of A's, right? It goes, ah, right? <laughs> it says the ah end of it all. The very end of mRNA is blah, 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 word I can't pronounce. This is a fancy way of saying it ends with a lot of ah. Even mRNA has had enough of 2020, it appears. Oh. So, it doesn't need to have all this, but basically every time this program, this DNA program, gets run, it loses some stuff at the end, just from wear and tear, right? So they just chuck loads of ah on the end. And I just thought this was just a really interesting parallel, because this is code that has been written on like an editor on your computer, but with a hugely different set of priorities. It's interesting that it's not running on a von Neumann architecture, mm -hmm. right? Unless <laughs> yeah. you want to get like, Whoa. right? Because we're already in like metaphor land, right? Like, oh, DNA is code, right? So we're already mm. in the realm of, of metaphor to some extent, right? In the way that, and I guess it's equally metaphorical that like C is code, right? C is not code. Get out of here. Um, computer code is not code. I'm sorry. What? what? <laughs> no. What? What? Um, so it's interesting that, that we're already in this realm of metaphor. And so we can, we can probably say, yeah, the, the human body is not a von Neumann machine. It might be a von Neumann. Unless you are von Neumann himself, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Von Neumann's body. I mean, it's not a machine. <laughs> yeah. Well, Whoa. you know, he's more machine now than man. Um, it, this is like David Ackley has a definition for what a living system is. Ooh. And he has this, it's like a dynamic, persistent system. Ooh. And so he gives an example of uh, little eddies in the water that are mm. swirling around yeah. are living yeah. in his definition. Yeah. Because they're di these dynamic, persistent, they only last for a little while, but they take energy from other s yeah. places. And so, yes, and, and he wants these robust first systems to be living systems in the same way. That makes me so happy. I'm like, I, you know what? This paper's short and it's kind of weird. It's not <laughs> what we usually do. I love David Ackley. This, like, this stuff makes me so happy. I'm glad that there's, you know, somebody like, like, Ackley out there pushing for computing to be different in this way and not afraid to get freaky with it. Like we spend, I, I in particular spend so much time on this podcast, like lamenting 
how everything is a monoculture and how different I want things to be. And here's somebody who's like actually genuinely doing it, but like backing it up with the like, you know, look, I did this like actual computer science work, you know, and analyzing these different algorithms and, and submitting a thing to ACM. And like, you know, he's, he's, he's putting on the costume of a computer scientist to go out there and be like, actually, I just want to make life. <laughs> we stand Dave Ackley. We yeah. stand, we stand a complex King. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, I think that's what, what I like. Like, I don't even know how far I agree. You know, I, I haven't even sort of come to terms with weight. Am I fully robust pilled? But it really, it just makes my imagination go. It makes me think beyond my normal, like, bounds when it comes to coding. And it makes me see things in a different way. And that's what I appreciate about it. And and I see what he's saying. You know, it's like, I agree, but like, am I, am I brave enough to truly dedicate my life to robust first? Find out next time on the patreon exclusive anyway patreon.com slash future of coding can i can i read something uh from from another one of his papers which is about von neumann von neumann von neumann for whatever all right randy neumann okay. randy neumann um 65 years ago randy neumann predicted that hardware determinism would soon be supplanted. But with design lock-in and network effects, it remains virtually unchallenged today. Randy Newman said that, right? Uh, in, that's from Indefinite Scalability for Living Computation, one of Dave Ackley's other papers. I think it's kind of funny, like, even, <laughs> even Randy Newman was against Randy Newman architecture, right? Even, even Randy himself... <laughs> You know, so if the creator himself is against it, and maybe we should question it a little bit too. Yeah. Mic drop. <laughs> I have to say, I think since we're giving kind of like closing statements or general opinion statements here on the thing, I I love that there's somebody focused on something very different. I love seeing different avenues being explored for sure. But this paper left me left me wanting a more of an argument, right? Like I wanted to be convinced. Like I'm like, okay, robust first. But I I don't know what we're aiming at. And it reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, Kartik on the Slack, where he was arguing against dependencies basically like we shouldn't depend on like anything yeah like even the operating system yeah. that you're using or the hardware that you're making which feels like a, a, a almost like a similar kind of you know vibe here warms my heart not exactly the same but a similar vibe and i didn't get the argument until it was kind of just put as like a instead of practical terms more of a moral stance right like this is just how things ought to be. Like, this is a better world where we don't have to depend on all of these things. And I, I, I guess I just don't know how to take this. Like, is Ackley giving us a new way of living, a new way of being that is kind of a moral life way? Or is he saying, we're going to have better practical applications at the end if we go this route? And if it's the latter, like, this is going to be better and more practical... 
I don't know that I'm convinced of that. If this is instead more like I see things like permacomputing and these sorts of things, right? Like an ideologically driven way of doing this, I might be more on board with that. Like even if it, even if I don't follow it, I might see the logic more. And that's what this paper really lacked for me was like, how, how do I get into this mindset? How do I decide that robust first is for me? Is it that I'm looking for a problem, a solution to a problem, or is it looking for, you know, some different vibe, some different way of being. And when I listened to some of the other things from Ackley, I definitely got more of that sense of like, this is about vibe. This is about changing our relationship to computing. It's about that sort of, and I wish this paper had more of that. I just want to know, like, what is the argument here? Why should I buy into this? And if it's just on practical considerations, it just seems to fall a little flat. I think it's got to be more than that. Ivan, are you robust pilled? <sighs> and by the way, yeah, I, I, I totally see where you're coming from from there, Jimmy. I agree, but at the same time, I'm reminded of the Upton Sinclair quote that it's very hard to get uh, Jimmy Miller to understand something when his Jimmy Millerness depends on him not understanding it. And that's embodied <laughs> in the quote from this paper. Today's computing base is optimized for the perfect logician. That's Jimmy. Jimmy, that's Jimmy. is the perfect logician. Like, have you seen him? He's perfect. He's also very logical. Um, and uh, yeah, that 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 explains to me why he is not so easily robust pilled as the as the two of us mm -hmm. you know me and Lou who are not very logical beings <laughs> excuse me no it's probably true yeah this is how we got here <laughs> I mean I'll happily admit like when I read that I was like but you can do all of this with logic too right like <laughs> that is my first re my first <laughs> reaction right that doesn't strike me as like oh but why why give up those parts right that uh-huh your your argument's irrational it's not comprehensive enough i need more supporting data and you know yeah please explain your thinking in a, uh, in a more robust way uh, <laughs> i will just say i also recoil at the word robust but i i got rid of that for this one because in industry when people say robust it is just <gasps> it stands for everything i dislike aka like java enterprise mm. stuff right i know that's not what we were talking about here yeah. but i had to like yeah, yeah. at yeah. first i was like robust no ugh. and then i realized what what this means i usually recoil at it when i see it too because you know i think no but you're not really robust are you you know <laughs> where's <laughs> you can't slice your computer in half what if i drop a nuke on you yeah uh. <laughs> you know um when i when i presented cell pond in at splash one of the <laughs> one of the most common comments that I got was no, but it's not really non-deterministic, is it? It can't be, you know. How do you? But ha you had you had it doing multiple steps. You can't do that. Oh, you had it do being Turing complete. You can't do that on a non-deterministic system. And and uh, the number of times I said no, 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 you can. Look, let me show you. There's something that just doesn't sit well with with some people and me at first as well. I think that's why it intrigued me so much. It doesn't sound like it can work. And there's an element of that that can put me off and there's an element of that that makes me want to find out more. And through finding out more, I've to my surprise discovered, oh my god, it can work. <laughs> yeah. It's 
it's this thing, like Ackley here is doing what I often try to do with visual programming, which is to say there's this way that people approach writing software and building things on computers where there's there are trade-offs and dimensions along which they can vary their approach that they're not even conscious of. And so they they automatically do things in a certain way. And it is, first of all, value to point, valuable to point out that those things could be different, right? Like we could, instead of using text as the interface through which we express our intention to the computer, we could do it through something not text. Or instead of prioritizing efficiency and correctness, we could also consider robustness. And that first step is like establishing that there is a choice that has been made here at some point and that you have the option to make a different choice. But then the next thing that I think most people, when they're confronted with that, immediately write it off, it's not a binary choice. It's not like an either or. It's that you can, now that you've identified that there's this other way that things could be, you can try to have the best of both. You can, you know, why are we comparing bubble sort versus quick sort and merge sort? Well, because nobody's made robust sort yet, right? Like there might be a f like not, you know, N squared billion billion comparisons, bubble sort, <laughs> slow, awful thing. There might be something that is robust in the ways that we care about and fast, not as fast as the thing where you give up robustness, but fast enough for most practical purposes. And the same with visual programming versus textual programming. You don't have to completely get rid of textual programming. You can have a little bit of visual expression, maybe in your debugging tools or in how you visualize live data or in how you break up the problem domain and say, okay, my overall architecture is going to be expressed visually. And then my, my small, like, you know, in the small programming is going to be done textually or vice versa. There's like, lots of different things that you can do once you're aware that this trade-off exists. And so I appreciate this Ackley paper and this idea of robustness, not as a, you know, oh, hey, I have to give up on one thing in order to have the other thing in totality, but rather that this is a, a dimension along which I can make a conscious choice. And I, I really like that. This is like Avengers Endgame for me. You have to give up uh, half of all programming. <laughs> no, it's like, you know, Smash Bros. Ultimate or Spy Kids 3D at the end when they get everyone to come. It's because this is like this crazy crossover episode for me because I'm a huge fan and follower of all of the robust first stuff. And I listen to the Future of Coding podcast. And now it's like, both in one? It's like the crossover episode, you know, in comic books where, like, Spider-Man saves someone else, you know? Iron Man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have not watched any Marvel movies, but... Yeah, I haven't. It's Ivan Reese talking about robust first computing. What's going on? What's going on? It's crazy. Well, it, it was nice <sighs> having you on as a guest for these two episodes, Lou. Oh, yeah. Right. Where, where can people find you on the internet? I know you're on, on Patreon uh, and uh, some other places. Toadpond.com, baby. Toadpond.com. There's only one place now. Toadpond.com. Getting slippy. Getting slippy. Yeah. 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 It was good having you. And um, you'll never guess who our surprise guest will be next episode. Uh, <laughs> uh, you'll have to just tune back in and, and see who it is. Uh, who are you getting? <laughs> rhymes with uh, Onathan Rowe. 
It rhymes with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> we can't wait. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, cheese and rice. <laughs> I just like the fact that people's names rhyme with their own names. So you can just say their names and it rhymes with. Mm-hmm. And you're still logically correct. Look at that. Perfect logic. <laughs> Lua Luke, either's fine, rhymes with Lua Luke. <laughs> Any rhyme. Did the crime. Did the crime. Uh, oh, this is this is scraping a very new low for us. We, the episode ended half an hour ago. Stop recording. 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 <laughs>